Jeremiah chapter 33. It says in Jeremiah 33, verse one. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the second time while he was yet shut up in the court of the prison, saying. Now pause for a second, Jeremiah's in prison. One of the things you'll notice as a Bible reader is that oftentimes the passages of, of scripture that were penned, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit through the hand of man, but the, the, the you know, writings that were written in prison cells are oftentimes some of the more blessed of the writings. Uh, you'd think they'd be you know, a bummer uh, when you say, well, I'm gonna write something and I'm in prison, so here goes, woe is me. Or 101 reasons how to escape, or you know, ways to escape prison. You know, send help, put a uh, you know, hacksaw in the cake. Like whatever you're gonna do, but you're in prison. That's a bad, that's a bad thing. But it's amazing how many of the, the scriptures were written in prisons or dungeons. One of my favorite books of the Bible is the book of Philippians. And it's this book about joy and rejoicing. And Paul just seems to be in such a good mood. He, he's imprisoned in Rome when he writes the book of Philippians. So it's kind of an interesting, the prison epistles in the New Testament are always a blessing. And, uh, and here Jeremiah is writing from prison in this passage. If you recall this section, and you might be a little confused because we've, we've done a little backward and forward on Sunday versus Wednesday. And so just as a reminder, we're, on Wednesday night, we're still in this section that we started in chapter 30, if you recall, uh, and it's called the, the Book of Consolation, and it's the section of Jeremiah, chapters 30 through 33, Books of Consolation. Once you get into 34, it's a different sort of uh, theme in the book of Jeremiah, but 30 through 33 is the Books of Consolation, or the Book of Consolation, and you'll see that throughout each of those chapters, there's a, a consoling word given by Jeremiah. So here's Jeremiah sitting in a prison cell or a dungeon in Jerusalem, and he's gonna give a consoling word. He's also gonna give some heavy words, but he also is gonna remind them of the good news as well. You know, uh, one thing I've noticed in people is it's when they go through times of suffering that oftentimes I see the Lord turn that around somehow in their life to them rejoicing. It's an amazing thing how suffering can almost promote rejoicing. And I know that sounds sort of, you know, um, opposed to itself to say somebody's rejoicing, but you know, we hear Paul say that, I rejoice in tribulation uh, or suffering or trials because they build hope and patience and experience. I see that in the Christian church. You know, if you're a healthy person here and you're thinking everything's great and you think you're pretty happy now and, and then you hear oh, the doctor say cancer, you have cancer. What would that do? Well, some of you might think, well, that's gonna just be devastating. That would be the worst thing I could ever hear with my ears, that I would ever have cancer. Brett, you shouldn't even talk like that. La, 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 I'm gonna live forever. I'm not gonna die. And some people kind of put it out of their minds and they go on their miserable lives, hoping to be safe and never die. But I've noticed that when people do hear those words, I've often seen in the believers, the Christians, that when they get that message, there's something that the Lord does and he stirs up within them whatever strength they need to get through whatever they're about to go through. That's what I've seen. And I can say this as a pastor of many years, watching a lot of people go through cancer that was cured and fixed and healed. But I've also seen it maybe even stronger in the people who had cancer, who were given that you know fatal, you have this amount of time to live and sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. But, but I've noticed that there's a joy that's inexplicable, hard to describe. And it's like this, there's a peace in their heart that as it turns out, passes understanding. It goes beyond our ability to understand. And the reason I say that is it's a little bit like this with Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah, he was preaching the word, just being a good dude, got punched in the face, was thrown into prison and left there. And, and so, you know, what could be worse? Well, you're in prison with walls around you and the city that you're in prison in has a wall around it. And there's a, the world's biggest army outside that wall ready to crush the city. Like that's bad, you're, you know, you're already in prison, but you're in prison in a city that's about ready to be crushed uh, by the Babylonians led by Nebuchadnezzar. 
Now the scene is pretty bleak and pretty dark, but I love how Jeremiah has got still a consoling word, something to remind the people that God's gonna be faithful. And so just something to think about as you might prepare yourself uh, because oftentimes we do face troubles and trials and, and instead of freaking out or being fearful, um, for you to already kind of be equipped and, and have it in the back of your mind, the Lord's gonna give me whatever I need to get through this season, whatever I need to go through. And I, there's people in this room who've been through horribly difficult things but I've seen how the Lord gets them through those things and how it makes them stronger and better for it. <clears throat> so let's take a look and see what this, uh, what, what, let's look for the consolation that Jeremiah is about to show us. So it says the word of the Lord, second time in the court of the prison saying, thus saith the Lord, the maker thereof, the Lord that formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name. Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. We looked at this verse uh, a few weeks ago on Sunday morning, Saturday night, uh, because it's such a great thing. In trouble, what do you do? It just tells us, the Lord says, call unto me, that's prayer, and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Not And so here we have it, right, uh, that, that verse. So hopefully maybe you can remember that word mighty is the word but sure. Um, and it means uh, unsearchable, uh, un- unable for us to even know by ourselves without the Lord's help. The Lord wants to show you things and reveal you, uh, reveal to you uh, beautiful and marvelous things. By the way, um, when you're reading the Bible, uh, some people read the Bible and they just go, it just doesn't mean much to me. I don't get it. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Can I just give you this word to, to pray through the Bible? Because even it says, call to me and I will answer thee and show you great and mighty things, unsearchable, hidden things um, that you don't know. And I'll, I'll reveal those things to you. And when you read the Bible sort of actively asking the Lord, Lord, help me to have understanding, the Lord promises that he'll reveal mighty things to you. Uh, I love that, and, and uh, it'll make the Bible kind of come to life for you. A lot of people lack that, that, you know, that Holy Spirit inspiration in their own personal reading of the Bible. That comes through prayer. Um, there's different ways to read the Bible, by the way. I have several modes that I read the Bible. Sometimes I just read the Bible devotionally, and uh, I just kind of, you know, daily kind of read some scripture, some sections. Um, and that's just like, you know, and sometimes I'll, I'll honestly, I'll break out a, a, an easier translation than the King Jimmy. Um, I might, I might uh, read an ESV and, and just kind of read through it. If I want to just kind of read and, and let the Lord sort of speak to me through larger chunks, that's great. There's other times I read the Bible in more of a prayerful and even journaling kind of mode. And I, I would recommend that where you have your journal open and you're reading your Bible and you're writing down thoughts and impressions and things that the Lord's showing you. Because if you're like me, I could be doing what I just told you, pray and read the Bible and let the Lord speak to you and give you those, you know, sure, the hidden things, the unsearchable things. But if you're not writing down the things the Lord's showing you, you'll forget them tomorrow. I guarantee it. Wow, the Lord was really speaking to me yesterday. What did the Lord show you? Uh, I don't remember. Uh, that's where journaling comes in. And, uh, and if you do journal and write them down, um, you, can, uh, you can go back and remember what the Lord was revealing to you. That's what you know, these guys did, Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel. These prophets wrote down the things that God was revealing to them. And thus we have the Bible today. And I think the Lord can reveal uh, important and mighty things to all of us as we ask him. And uh, so, so reading the Bible prayerfully, uh, sort of in a journaling kind of mode, I find that really helpful. So you got more of a devotional reading, you have more of a prayerful journaling reading. And then I have a third mode that is more of a, you know, study, get out all the commentaries, bust out Logos Bible software, look at the Hebrew, the Greek, and the, uh, look at other hermeneutics and other teachings and pastors that have taught on those scriptures and doing some, you know, digging and studying. That's also something I love. That's probably one of my favorite modes. But honestly, the things that are most impacting in my life uh, are not the times I'm doing that as much as, as those times where I'm praying and journaling through the Bible. 
Uh, that's where, you know, on, when I'm teaching the Bible, it's always interesting to me because I can teach and share things. And, and, you know, it's good to go through the Bible and know the math and the history and all the stuff behind it, the, you know, the Greek, the Hebrew. So we can teach the Bible and have people understand. But, you know, the, the stuff that I go, uh, that the Lord has shown me personally and through prayer and journaling, when I bring that out in a teaching, that's when people come up after church and say, Brett, who told you I was going through that? Like, who, how did you know? And I'm like, I didn't, uh, but that's what the Lord's showing me. And it's, and it's amazing how those things tend to resonate uh, in the heart of the congregation. And I think you'll find that to be true in your life as well. Um, there's the logos word and there's the rhema word. The logos is the written word. The rhema is God's, God breathed. You know, it's that, that inspired word that he can, <clears throat> you know, speak into your life. And um, by the way, the Bible, when talking about how the word of God is quick and sh powerful, sh uh, sharper than any two-edged sword. Well, when it's the, you know, the big sword, the big battle axe sword, the sharper than two-edged sword, the word for word is logos. But there's other places in the Bible where the Bible's talking about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is the, the word is rhema. Why does the Lord use two different words for the word word? The scriptures. The answer is the Lord speaks to us both in the logos, the written word, the battle axe sword, double-edged sword, but he also speaks, what was the rhema? The rhema sword that's talked about uh, when the Bible talks about the sword of the spirit is more of a small 18-inch uh, sword uh, that's like a personal defense weapon. And it was used for more exacting, you know, it'd be something like a Navy SEAL would carry in Bible days, you know, kind of a more exacting weapon uh, and used for, you know, fine-tuned uh, battle, like a close quarter combat kind of thing. And that, that rhema was an exacting word. And, and that's, that's what the Lord's saying about the sword of the spirit. It can be the battle axe of the logos, but it can also be this dagger that's the rhema that rightly divides and, and convicts us of truth. And man, I hope you're getting both. Logos and the rhema. Are you guys with me on that? That's important uh, when you study in the Bible. Well, all that to say, um, the Lord will show you great and mighty things if you seek for, for that and ask for that. Well, verse four, he goes on and says, for thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are thrown down by the mounts and by the sword, they come to fight with the Chaldeans, but it is to fill them with the dead bodies of men whom I have slain in mine anger and in my fury for all, those, all whose wickedness I have hid my face from this city. Behold, I will bring it health and cure and I will cure them and will reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. You know, the key to understanding what Jeremiah is saying here is this uh, kind of dichotomy or seeming contradiction. You know, you, you sort of see, well, okay, you're gonna destroy a city and, and Jerusalem's gonna have all these dead bodies laying around. Great, thanks, Jeremiah. No wonder they punched him in the face. No wonder they threw him in prison, you know, because he was saying, you're all going down. But now that they're besieged, he's in prison, he, he, he gets the message out, says, listen, you guys, I know there's gonna be a lot of dead bodies and the city's going down, but... The Lord is gonna, and I love, this is that, this is the consoling part. The verse, you know, the verse six there says, behold, I will bring health and cure and I will cure them and reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. The Lord reminds the people through Jeremiah that he's not gonna totally destroy the Jews. Many of them would be taken off into captivity by the Babylonians and they would be there for 70 long years in captivity. But then the Lord would make the way so that they could go back and, and restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And you know, I love that the Lord is able to do that with the Jews and the Lord is able to do that with any nation. That's why I never lose hope, by the way, for the United States. Some of you might say, man, it's beyond help and beyond hope. But you know, there's been other times in our history where you could have thought that. Um, but you know what, uh, who knows? Maybe this is just a, one of those birth pains. Remember how the end times are like a birth pain, uh, they're contractions, but then the contraction lets up and things are good for a bit. Then another contraction. Maybe we just had a big contraction and maybe the Lord can heal this nation. So we should humble ourselves before the Lord and do what the word tells us to do and pray and seek the Lord for our country. Uh, don't just count it as a lost cause because there's been many times. Did you know during World War I, pretty much the whole world thought they were in Armageddon. They really believed that. 
yep, we've arrived, this is Armageddon, the, the world war that the Bible talks about in the last days. And they all thought it was Armageddon, especially if you're one of those, you know, soldiers, you know, uh, shell-shocked. That's where that word came from, is World War I, shell-shocked. Man, it just went nuts. Uh, in, in, sitting in the mud in these horrible foxholes, you know, and, um, and uh, it was just a horrifying death uh, there in, in that region. Millions of people in the meat grinder of World War I and people just thought, this is it, this is the end of the world. But it wasn't, it seemed like it. And, and so as Christians, we don't really know when the Lord's gonna return. We don't know when the end really is, but what do we do? We just stay faithful and keep praying and seeking and reading the word and, and hoping and praying for the you know, repentance of a nation and for healing of a nation and the Lord can do these things. So we remain optimistic, not because of you know, who our president is or isn't, it's we remain optimistic because of who our God is and who we worship. So that's amazing because you know, the people of Jeremiah's day would have said, man, we're totally toast. Jeremiah, what are you talking about? Calm, health, cure, that's not gonna happen. Uh, they wouldn't listen to poor Jeremiah when he was pronouncing doom upon them, but they also didn't listen to him when he was pronouncing blessing on them. And that's just the situation. Well, he goes on and now he's gonna talk about restoring the land, uh, restoring the relationship to the Lord and restoring the people to a people of honor. There's kind of a threefold restoration. The first one is the restoring of the land to the Jews, verse seven. And I will cause the captivity of Judah <clears throat> and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at the first. So this is verse seven is the restoration of the land to the people. That God would you know, set aside the land of Israel for the Jews, Israel and Judah. I, I like that he says both here because if you recall, it was you know, decades earlier um, you know, where the Israelites of the Northern 10 tribes were taken by the Assyrians. But now the Lord is saying, I'm gonna to restore to you the, the, um, the land of Judah, the captivity of Judah, and the captivity of Israel to return to the land. Um, again, I, I, I mentioned this before, but I gotta say it again. You'll, in your readings and studies, you'll find there's a group of people that try to sort of make this claim that um, the northern 10 tribes of Israel are the lost tribes of Israel. And there's all kinds of goofy writing on the lost tribes. You'll find everything from the lost tribes being the Incas and the Aztecs, down in uh, you know, the Central America. Um, you'll hear the lost tribes, they're, they're actually the Brits. Uh, they all went to England and Jesus went to England and married Mary and Magdalene and had a child and all this. Like there's all kinds of crazy Looney Tune uh, stuff out there about the lost tribes of you know, Ephraim and all this stuff. Be careful with that stuff. They were never lost and I'll tell you why. When the two kingdoms split, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, remember that whole story? Um, and Jeroboam saw that there were, his people were going down to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple. So he built these little temples, you know. Instead of having the big temple, let's just build these little miniature temples. And he put a golden calf at Bethel and also Dan. And said, hey, forget Jerusalem. Stay up here and worship these gods, uh, you know, your local gods and stay away from Jerusalem. And at that point, a bunch of the Jews in Israel, of all the, of all the tribes, said, Jeroboam, we're out of here. We're gonna go back to Jerusalem because we're not worshiping your golden calf. Um, when we go to Israel, we actually go to this place in Dan, the very rock where that golden calf was placed. We know exactly where that is. And we, we sit on it and do a Bible study. Uh, and then I tell everybody they're sitting on the stair. There's a stairway down to this rock and we sit on the stairway. It's always fun because I always say, the stairs you're sitting on, we know for sure Jezebel walked up these stairs. And it's kind of, everyone's like, can we take a bath now, like a shower? Ew, uh, she was gross. Uh, yeah, um, but it, it's, I think it's fairly clean since it's been several thousand years. But anyways, all that to say, uh, it's, it's an amazing place. Tell Dan is the place we go and see all this stuff. But, but what happened there is when Jeroboam set up those fake places of worship, many Jews of all tribes went back to Jerusalem. And so when people say the tribes were lost, they really weren't. A lot of those tribes were taken, uh, those people of the tribes were taken, but there were still, you know, Levites and people of Dan and Asher and, you know, uh, Ephraim and all that. They came back to Jerusalem and they, killed, they kept their identity and they were small in number at that time in history, but then they started to reproduce and their, their tribes were sort of regrown after the 70 years of captivity. This verse, verse seven, has largely come to pass. 
that the Lord would restore the people to the land. And, um, and we are watching that right before our eyes and there's all people of all tribes. Now here's the interesting thing. Most Jews don't know what tribe they're from. There's a few and some of them even by their last name still can know. Like if you're a Cohen, uh, I have a friend who's a Cohen uh, and uh, the Cohens were Levites and there's no real ar argument on that. If you know a Cohen, it's probably a Levite. And, and so we do know some of them, but most of the Jews couldn't tell you what tribe they're from. And that was sort of lost in history largely. Yeah, but Brett, how are we gonna know which tribes they are uh, in the book of Revelation during the tribulation? Well, first of all, we're gonna be in heaven and we'll know a lot more than we know now. That's the first good news. But also the Lord is the one who's gonna sort out those people in the book of Revelation. When it talks about those 12 tribes that are listed there, he knows who the tribe, who, what tribes they belong to and he's gonna sort them out. 12,000 of the tribe of Levi, 12 tribes of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 12 12, people of the tribe of Gad and, and Naphtali and all this. The Lord's gonna sort all that out. He knows who they are. So it's not a big deal. People get all up in a tizzy about things that God could just make it happen, no big deal. But there's no lost tribes. Be, be cautious of the teachings of uh, people that are saying, oh, the lost tribes. Uh, it's kind of a, uh, usually they've got an agenda that is not really biblical. So verse seven, I will cause the captive of Judah and the captive of Israel to return and will build them as at the first. And I'd say we've seen that happen, check. Verse eight is the restoration to the Lord. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. Man, this is fundamental Christianity right here. You gotta understand, this is what it's all about right here. Reconciliation to the Father. The Jews sinned against God, their Father, um, and the Lord says, I have forgiven your sins. I'll cleanse you from all your sins and all your iniquities. This is what it's all about. How is that gonna happen? Well, the Bible tells us. It's not by the sacrifice of bulls, rams, and goats, Hebrews tells us, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus died for the sins of the Jews, of the Old Testament. And even Abraham, it was counted unto him righteousness, and he was given that imputed righteousness. Why? Because of the work that Jesus would eventually do in history, uh, future time for Abraham, history from us, when Jesus came and died on the cross for our sins. So the Lord says, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity um, where they've sinned against me. This is the way the Jews would be reconciled back to the Father in heaven. Um, just, just if you wanna know what the Bible's all about, in a nutshell, it's pretty simple. God created humanity, told them not to sin. They sinned. We're gonna go to hell and death forever and eternity. But God loved the world. So he, the rest of the Bible, after Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis, um, after they sinned, the rest of the Bible is all about that reconciliation of sinful man back to good, good standing, good relationship with God. And the rest of the Bible is about that. And the Lord makes the way, the truth, the life, the, the, the way for a person to be saved. The truth, Jesus would be that way that the life would come through Christ. And those that would reject that way that God will provide to reconcile, there's no hope for them. Uh, there's no reconciliation apart from Jesus Christ. And so really verse eight in this restoration to the Lord, it's through the Messiah that would come and die on the cross for the sins of the world. And so that's the same thing's true for us. Um, I love that we can apply verse eight to ourselves as well, that the Lord would say to you, I will cleanse you from all your iniquity whereby you have sinned against me and I will pardon some, no, all pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. Well, Brett, I notice that you tend to say all and stuff like that, but what about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? That's the one unpardonable sin according to the scriptures. True, the Bible does say that, Jesus taught that. But it's interesting, you know, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is somewhat of a long discussion, but um, it has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, people think, what does it mean to blaspheme? Well, the word blaspheme means to speak against. Uh, to argue against. So when somebody argues against Jesus's existence, they would cry, you know, or that Jesus was God, blasphemy, because they're speaking against what the, the Spirit of God is speaking about Jesus. So, so if you're speaking against the Spirit, now here's the, the way this is, this is how we deduce 
what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's work, Jesus said, after I leave, when I depart, die on the cross, rise from the grave, ascend into heaven, after me is coming the comforter, the Holy Spirit. And there's a long list in John 14 and John chapter 16 of the things that the Holy Spirit would do. But one of the main works of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, and he will speak of me. He shall glorify me. And by the way, when, whenever you see a church glorifying the Holy Spirit more than they're glorifying Jesus, they're missing the whole point. You have to watch out for that. It's not all about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is God. God the Father is God, all one. But Jesus said, here's what the work of the Holy Spirit is, to glorify me, to point to me, to teach about me, the Son. And so if a person blasphemes the Holy Spirit, it's to speak against what the Holy Spirit is saying. What's the Holy Spirit saying? Well, remember when um, in the book of Genesis, the Lord says, my spirit will not always strive with man. And before you were saved, the Bible says the Holy Spirit is with you. When you get saved, the Holy Spirit is in you. When you're saved and the Holy Spirit moves in your life to do something anointed and manifesting the Holy Spirit, that's called the Holy Spirit being upon you. Three relationships we have with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> He's with you. Before you were even saved, he was with you. He's in you once you become a Christian, but he's also upon you when the Holy Spirit empowers you and he works through you. But the reason that with one, the first one is so important is before you were even saved, do you remember before you were a Christian? Was there ever a time where the Holy Spirit was there going, you need to be a Christian. You need to believe in Jesus and the cross. Tap, tap, tap. He was tapping you on the shoulder. Before you were ever saved, you knew there was something real there. That was the Holy Spirit. And the tragedy is when a person resists the Holy Spirit and, and what's the ultimate sin that's unforgivable is when a person says, I speak against what that Holy Spirit is saying when in that with relationship. So if you're an unbeliever and the Holy Spirit's been saying, you need the Lord, you need to accept Christ. Um, and you're saying, I refuse. Then that's the unpardonable sin. There's a lot of sins that people I think almost put in the unpardonable category. Um, like for example, I've heard people say suicide. Suicide's unforgivable, why? Well, there's, there's a sense of them not knowing how it all works. And they think, man, if you kill yourself, that's a sin. Yes, it is, suicide is a sin. Um, but if you do that, that's the last thing you do, you did a sin, so aren't you going to hell because of that? Well, um, what if you're thinking a horrible thought and you get run over by a semi-truck on the freeway and die? Are you going to hell? What if, what if Mother Teresa, in the last 10 seconds of her life, thought, you know, some you know, blankety blank, this and that, and then suddenly killed. Would Mother Teresa go to hell because the last thing she did? No, you gotta remember, we're saved by grace through faith, not of our works. And you gotta remember, Jesus Christ died once for all sin. He died for your sins, past, present, future. That's the good news. And suicide is a sin. It's a very self-centered sin. It's a very a self-focused sin. It's, it's horrible sin. And remember, sin is bad because it's hurtful to others and to us. But suicide is not the unpardonable sin. I hope you understand that um, because all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short. Now, suicide is one of the more hurtful and damaging sins and that's why God calls it sin. The only sin that is unforgivable is when a person says, I reject Jesus Christ, I reject the cross. That is the unpardonable sin. The one sin that's unforgivable. Now, this is important because here, I love this word because it's so all-encompassing, this restoration. The Lord is so open-ended with this. You know, I will cleanse them from all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned against me, and I will pardon all of their iniquities, whereby they have sinned against, whereby they have transgressed. Like verse eight is so great. I've got it marked, yellowed, highlighted, because I'm so thankful for that truth, that he died once for all, that he reconciles you and me to God, even though we're sinners um, through his Messiah, Jesus Christ. So number one, verse seven, you got the restoration of the land to the people. Number two, verse eight, you got restoration uh, of the people to the Lord. And then number three, we see restoration to be a nation of honor. And that's in verse nine. It says there, and it shall be to me a name of joy a praise and an honor before all the nations of the earth, 
which shall hear all the good that I do unto them, and they shall fear and tremble for all the goodness, for all the prosperity that I procure unto it. So this is, this is why, you know, these sections, even though Jeremiah's, yeah, you're all going down, Babylon's gonna crush you, Jerusalem's gonna be toast, but this is the consoling part. But I'm gonna forgive their sins, I'm gonna restore you to the land, but I'm also gonna restore the reputation among all the nations of Israel. Brad, are we seeing that? Has that already happened prophetically? In some ways, I think you might be able to say, yeah, look, it's amazing. Israel's an amazing nation. And we've done tons of studies. One, one time I talked about all the things that the Jews have given to the world. And compared to all the other races and people groups in the world, nobody even comes close, whether, whether you're talking about science or math or the arts uh, or uh, you know, medical uh, uh, breakthroughs. And like, it's really incredible what the Jewish people have given to the world. It's, it's amazing. When it says, by you, Abraham, all of the nations will be blessed. I think there's a twofold thing there. Jews have blessed the nations through all that stuff, but ultimately blessed through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the ultimate Jew, uh, would save the whole world. But, but it's an amazing thing how the Jews have been such a giant blessing to the world. Meanwhile, the world hates the Jews. Isn't that something? Like the Jews are the target of all the people of the world. These Jews occupying Israel. What's their problem? Well, the problem is the world hates them and wants to kill them. And have tried to extinguish the Jewish people as an ethnic group for millennia now. It's an amazing thing to watch. It's, it's really, the reason I point all this out is, you know, it's really biblically proportioned. When you see what the world thinks of the Jews and what's happened historically with the Jews, there's no denying that the Bible is, is just true. The Bible has told us all of this about what's gonna to happen to the Jews and the nation and the land and all this. And we've just watched it all happen. And if you read your Bible carefully, you cannot deny that this book is miraculous. The Bible is true and God knows exactly what he's doing. But I don't think we've seen the fullness of this blessing that the nations would have a reputation. You know, Cause right now, largely uh, the world hates the Jews, even though we're impressed by them and what they've done. Uh, largely the world hates the Jews, but when will this ultimately change? I believe it'll happen when Christ returns, the second coming of Christ, the millennial kingdom, when Jesus rules from Jerusalem in Jerusalem. It's gonna be uh, the millennial kingdom, a thousand years where Christ rules on this earth and reigns. And that's when the nations will, will fully come to this verse nine, this uh, being a nation of real honor and the world will acknowledge that. Well, verse 10 Thus saith the Lord, again, there shall be heard in this place, which you, shall be de- uh, you say shall be desolate without man and without beast. Even in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man and without inhabitant, without beast. The voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voice of them that shall say, praise the Lord, of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his mercy endureth forever. And of them shall, that shall bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord, for I will cause the re, to return the captivity of the land as at the first saith the Lord. Um, here, you know, he's talking about how Israel would become desolate, man nor beast. Um, and then verse 11, and there'll be a, a time where the voice of the bride and the bridegroom will say, And then interestingly, uh, verse 11 is a verse used to this day uh, at Jewish weddings. Did you know that? They they quote this verse, uh, Jeremiah 33, 11, at Jewish weddings um, uh, as as sort of a blessing. So that's something that's kind of interesting. If you go to a Jewish wedding, you might just hear Jeremiah 33, 11, the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride. Um, All about the restoration of Israel. Now, um, you guys always hear me talking about Mark Twain on Israel because uh, I, I love that because I've read his works on that. Early in his writing co- career, um, I've mentioned this a bunch of times, but I've never really quoted what he actually wrote. So I'm gonna show you just a few things. I always tell you how, you know, um, over a hundred years ago, I think it was 1867, Mark Twain went to Israel, the Holy Land, and he was there for almost a year touring the land. Um, and... Uh, um, and here's, here's some of the, the reason why this is important is we don't have a lot of modern day historical record from over a hundred years ago, what Israel looked like. 
Um, we just know what the Bedouins tell us. Uh, they didn't have a great record keeping system. Um, there's a few artists that went through the land and drew pictures back in the 1800s of Israel and it's very desolate. But this is what Mark Twain wrote in his book. He said, the further we, we went, the hotter the sun got and the more rocky and bare and repulsive the dreary landscape became. There was hardly a tree or shrub anywhere. Even the olive and the cactus, those fast friends of a worthless soil had almost deserted the country. The statement reflects, you know, his general attitude, by the way, of, um, you know, ancient uh, land throughout his journey, you know, the land of Israel. Um, and one of the sharpest and most kind of really beautiful passages, I think he acknowledges this, Twain states this. He says, Palestine is a desolate and unlovely land. Why should it be otherwise? Can the curse of the deity beautify a land? Palestine is no more of this workday world. It is sacred to poetry and tradition. It's only a dreamland. What's he saying? He's saying this is worthless, dry desert. The cactus and the olive tree can barely survive here. And there's one place he said for like three weeks he didn't see one living thing. And, and he was just kind of depressed in the Holy Land. Now, the reason this is important, by the way, because uh, the Lord says to Jeremiah, it's gonna be desolate. Man nor beast is not gonna dwell in land. This happened a couple times mainly in history. It happened in 586 after Jeremiah and the Nebuchadnezzar trounces Jerusalem. It really would set empty for 70 years and in destruction, the land of Israel. But more so, and this is that ripple effect of Bible prophecy, probably the biggest one was AD 70. After the Romans crushed Jerusalem in AD 70, man, it sat empty and desolate for, for centuries. For like 1,500 years, it was just totally barren. And it would be in the 1700s, the Jews would start to, you know, the Zionist movement would start to move back to the land and they'd buy back land and from the Bedouins and from the people there, they purchased land with money. A lot of the land of Israel was purchased. Who can say that about their country? Did you buy your land from the Indians? Uh, the Jews did largely. And yet again, the world's saying, get out of that, that you're occupying. Not, not so. The Lord gave them the land. We, the United States and the League of Nations back then gave them the land and they purchased land, like, like three strikes against the, the world's, their occupiers of the land. That's stupid, it's wrong. But it, it did set totally empty and desolate, just like the Bible said, where, where man nor beast. And, uh, and Mark Twain logs that and says, man, Israel is a desolate place. Now, the reason I point that out is, um, it says in the last days, the fig tree, Israel, would blossom. That's one of the prophecies that says, and the, and the generation that sees Israel come to full blossom, Jesus said, that's the, that's the generation, the last generation before the second coming of Christ. So then the big question is, well, when does the state of Israel, when was it in full blossom? Not sure. Some people still would argue May 14th, 1948, Israel blossomed and became a nation again. And so that generation, the World War II generation, the baby boomers, the greatest generation, they're the ones that would not fully die or pass away before the second coming of Christ. Maybe that's it, you know, but we're getting pretty close to the end of that. Um, some people say, no, 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 it wasn't then. It was, you know, in, in the Yom Kippur War when they were able to get some other land back or the Six, you know, the six Day War. You know, you could talk about when, when the Jews got Jerusalem again. That's when Israel blossomed. And there's all kinds of speculation. When did the, the nation Israel blossom? Some could argue um, back in like 2006, Israel became the number two producer of fruit and vegetables for all of Europe. Here's this little tiny speck of land in the Middle East that used to be a, he said, Mark, not even a cactus can grow here. And right now, Israel's one of the top producers of fruit and vegetables. And by the way, the fruit from Israel is, is um, and I'm not just being hyperbole here or using hyperbole, I'm just, I'm just saying it's the best fruit in the world. And there's actually a scientific reason why the, the fruit from Israel tastes sweeter. You wanna know what it is? Uh, I'll give you a clumsy, I'm not a botanist or bio, biologist, but um, uh, I've talked to biologists and botanists and er, what, are they, what are the people that are into plants and stuff? Herbologists, whatever. Um, 
But uh, in Israel, we, we listened to this guy one time who was explaining what had happened. The land became so desert and dry and barren and even the salt content in the land. And if you've been to the Dead Sea, you know what I'm talking about. The land has a saltiness to it. Um, uh, the Dead Sea is just salt. That's why it's dead. There's nothing living in it. But as it turns out, for plants to grow there, they've had to sort of adapt these plant, the plant life to a bit of a hostile situation. The dirt is sort of hostile. And what they found with their, you know, the science of the Israelis and their water system and the way that they do all their farming and stuff, it's really earth uh, shattering, groundbreaking uh, science uh, that these Jews have used to bring the land of Israel from barrenness back to fertility. And you can drive through regions of Israel now and just miles of banana groves and palm trees and fruit trees and, you know, papayas and all kinds of, you know, delicious fruits and what have you, apples and oranges. And like, it's, it's just prolific. And when you eat the fruit, it's extra, you know, sweet. You're like, why is this so sweet? And the answer is those plants th through science, but also through, you know, some kind of an adaptive behavior in the plant, it had to overcompensate because of the saltiness of the soil. The plant had to sort of overcompensate and it, and it creates even a sweeter kind of fruit. And so Israel's just kind of hugely blessed right now. And some would say that's the fig tree blossoming. It's literally coming back to life with farmlands and fruit trees. And it's kind of amazing. One of the things I love to do is take our groups up to um, Ben Tall. It's this really, really tall mountain in the Golan Heights. Uh, and I like to show them Syrian positions and uh, we look over into Syria and you can see the light at nighttime of Damascus. You can't see Damascus, you can see the light of the city kind of over the horizon. And, uh, and you see an ISIS town uh, that was just, uh, last time we were there, you can say, yeah, the ISIS guys are right there. And you can see it, like it's, you know, a few miles off of the distance, but yeah, I say ISIS is right there. They're like, can we go now? No, it's great. But one of the things I show them up on Mount Bentall is um, there's something they call the green line. And when you're up on Mount Bentall, you look down and there's this green, 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 green. And then there's a line with a road on it and a creek. And then it's brown, 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 brown as far as the eye can see. And I always say the green is Israel. That's the Israeli border. And the brown is Syria. And it's, it's, it's such a juxtaposition to see, here's this you know, fruitful, green, lush land that the Lord has blessed, just like he said he would. It's all fulfilling Bible prophecy. And there's poor Syria and really Jordan. When you cross the border into Jordan, it's just desert and barren and dry. But Israel, fruitful. That's one of the things I like to try to show people when we go to Israel. Look at this, like this is the Lord's prophecy of being fruitful and blossoming. Well, I didn't mean to get into all that. Uh, and we've got some serious work to do here. Uh, where were we? Yes, okay. So verses 10 through 11, uh, the marriage verse and also the desolation. Well, we'll see more of that. Verse 12, thus saith the Lord of hosts again, in this place which is desolate without man and without beast, and in all the cities thereof shall be an habitation of shepherds causing their flight flocks to lie down. In the cities of the mountains, of the cities of the vale, in the cities of the south, in the land of Benjamin, and the places of Jerusalem, shall the flocks pass again under the hands of him that telleth them, saith the Lord. In other words, they'll be able to have sheep on here because there'll be grass again where sheep can graze. Behold, verse 14, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel, to the house of Judah. And even as the Lord has pr promised a good thing for Israel, he's promised a good thing for you. He's working all things together for good. To the called, according to his purpose, the Lord's, the Lord's gonna cause good things to happen. I will, verse 15, in those days, and at that time I will cause the branch of the righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Interesting. This is the name wherewith she, Jerusalem, shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Does anyone know what the, the name is of the Lord there that we're talking about? 
Right, Jehovah Sidkenu. If you weren't with us, you know, we saw this back in chapter 23. Jeremiah used this name, Jehovah Sidkenu, which means the Lord, our righteousness. And, um, and this is great. That's gonna be the name of the city. By the way, in Ezekiel 48, 35, let me just read real fast. Last verse of Ezekiel. It was around about the 18th thousandth measure. And it says, the name of the city of Jerusalem from that day shall be the Lord is there. That's uh, Jehovah Shammah, another name of God, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. And when's that gonna happen? That's when the millennial kingdom comes and God is gonna be back in Jerusalem, literally. It's an amazing thing, Jerusalem. It's, it's the city that God says, that's my city. It's got my name on it. And I'm even, even here, it's called the Lord our righteousness, Jehovah Sidkenu. Um, did you notice here in verse 15, the branch was brought up again? We talked about the branch on Christmas. Uh, when we talked about the branches of the Christmas tree and how the branch is a, a name, a title of the Messiah, Jesus. And it's used here again, this word branch. Remember the, the Hebrew word, anybody? Netzer, where we get the word, uh, you know, Nazareth, where Jesus was from. Uh, it's a great story. And if you missed that, we called it, I think something, the branch, uh, something like that, our teaching uh, from several weeks back. But this is Jeremiah bringing that up again in verse 15 and also bring up this name of the Lord, the Lord, our righteousness. This is a beautiful name of the Lord, the Lord, our righteousness. What is that? Why is that beautiful? It's not just saying the Lord is righteous. That's true too. But it says the Lord is our righteousness. Do you understand how beautiful that is? It's that imputed righteousness that we talked about where you and I are declared righteous, not because of our good deeds, but because the Lord is righteous. Do you remember in Genesis 22, when Abraham went up the mountain to sacrifice Isaac and Isaac said, dad, we got the wood for the offering. We got everything we need for the offering, but where's the lamb? And here's what Abraham said in, in uh, Genesis 22, eight, he said, uh, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together and built an altar. Was that a typo? Um, why wouldn't Abraham just say, God will provide a lamb? And he did, if you remember the story, God provided, instead of Isaac being slaughtered, uh, the Lord said he was demonstrating what substitution would be. Um, and, and this ram was caught in the thicket. And then Abraham would bring it and sacrifice it instead of Isaac. And that's a picture of you and me. We're the ones who deserve to die for our sins. But the Lord provided himself, literally. Jesus, the lamb of God, would be himself the sacrifice for sin the Lord, our righteousness. His righteousness is then imputed over us. And, uh, and by the way, if you're, if, you gotta have that doctrine down. The doctrine of, of imputed righteousness. Jot down, of course, um, you know, 2 Corinthians. Um, there in 2 Corinthians uh, 5.21, I'll just read it to you real fast. It says, for he, uh, the Lord, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When Jesus became sin for us in our place, in our stead, he who knew no sin, Jesus never sinned, then it says, we might be made the righteousness of God. Jehovah said, Genu, the Lord our righteousness. Um, it's such a great doctrine, this doctrine of, of righteousness. Um, Romans chapter four, verse three, remember it says that, um, um, for what saith scripture, Abraham, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for what? Righteousness. And then it ends that same chapter in Romans uh, 4, 22. It says, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to Abraham, but for us also who, who it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. There, Romans chapter four, huge chapter on uh, imputed righteousness. Jehovah Sidkenu. Well, huge theme here in the Bible, big point there. Now, um, uh, by the way, um, Jesus being spoken of as the branch here in chapter 15, uh, the, the, our righteous one, chapter uh, 33, verse 16, but so far, do you, do you see how Jeremiah is really a lot about Jesus? Um, remember, when you read the Old Testament, look for Jesus. It's a big goof. 
Because Jesus said, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. Remember in chapter uh, two, verse 13, we read that scripture where Jeremiah said, you've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, the Lord says, for old broken down sisters. Jesus said, cisterns. Jesus said, I am the live, fountain of living water. Uh, you know, Jeremiah is speaking of Christ. Uh, in chapter 23, verse four and 3110 uh, speaks of Jesus as the good shepherd in the book of Jeremiah. Um, in chapter 30, verse nine, we read a few weeks ago that, that the, Jesus will be the son of David. And I can't uh, also forget that he's also, uh, you might call him the mediator or the uh, agent of the new covenant. What chapter of Jeremiah, quiz time, is the new covenant found? Jeremiah chapter 30, 31, right, 31. You were close, you were just one off and I was just waiting for it, that's right. That's something you should know, where is the new? If you missed that teaching on the new covenant, Christianity 101 right there. It's really important to know what the new covenant is. And so we did a study on the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, but that's also all about Jesus, okay? So really huge, really important. Verse 17, for thus saith the Lord, David shall never want for a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. In other words, there's gonna be a king sitting on that throne that's in the line of David, and that's ultimately gonna be Jesus, son of David. Verse 18, neither shall the priests and the Levites want for a man before me to offer burnt offerings and kindle meat offerings to do sacrifice continually. So it seems like he's talking about two people, a king and a priest, but what's the deal? Jesus is gonna be both, king and priest. How can he do that, Brett? You're not supposed to do that. Well, Jesus is different. He's the only one who can be prophet, priest, and king all in one uh, deal. And uh, he's gonna be a priest, by the way, in the, in the millennial kingdom. Not only is he gonna sit on the throne as king of kings, but he's also gonna be a priest after the order of, for you Bible scholars, what? After the order of what? Melchizedek, right, good, that's great. Uh, and that's Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. And also the whole chapter, Hebrews chapter seven, tells us about Christ's priesthood uh, and what that means. Well, verse 19, and the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah saying, thus saith the Lord, if you can break my covenant um, of the day and my covenant of the night, that there should be not, uh, not be day and night in their season, then uh, may also my covenant be broken with David, my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon the throne with the Levites, the priests and my ministers. Now this is confusing. This is King James way of saying, um, there's no way there's not gonna be a king from David sitting on the throne. If you can stop day and night from coming and going, which you can't, that's the idea, uh, then you can also stop the king from sitting on the throne, but you can't, that's the idea. Are you guys still with me on that? Very important, it's a little hard to understand on the King James there. As the host, verse 22 of heaven, cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, Oh, this is great. So another example, not only you know, stopping day and night, but if you can count the sand of the sea or the stars of the sky, did you know that they've tried to count all of those things? There's actually a funny history. Uh, it was, uh, was it Galileo who said, there are more than 5,000 stars in the sky. <laughs> you know, and he made that crude little telescope and, 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 and then he realized, wait a minute. And shortly after him, they realized, well, it's not just our sky, it's the sky around the world looking out. So it must be more like, you know, 30,000 stars in the sky. And for a long time, it wasn't until um, really like the Hubble Space Telescope uh, that we really started to go, you know what? Um, there's a lot of stars out there, billions, just in our, in our solar system, or our, pardon me, our um, galaxy. There are millions and millions and millions just in our galaxy alone, the Milky Way galaxy. As it turns out, they can sort of speculate now with math, how many stars there are. And this is the number they think right now. And no science would, scientist would die that we know the exact number. But they'd say it's somewhere around one in 10 to the 21st power. Do you know what kind of number that is? I, I was gonna go through that, what that number is, but we don't have time. It's just a lot of stars. Um, and you can't number them. Just you know, try to number the sands. Next time you go to the Oregon coast, go sit down and make a day of it, just grab a handful of sand and a one, a two, and see how long it takes uh, to number the sand of the sea. That's what the Lord's saying. If you can number the sand or the stars, 
um, then you'd be able to also, you know, do what he's, so, so that's what he starts out. Verse 22 is the host of heaven cannot be numbered. Um, neither the sand of the sea measured. So I will multiply the seed of David, my servant and the Levites that minister unto me. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, considerest thou not what the people have spoken saying the two families, which the Lord hath chosen, he hath cast them off. That'd be the two families being Israel and Judah. Thus they have, uh, they have despised my people that they should be no more a nation before them. Thus saith the Lord, if my covenant be not with day and night and I have not appointed the ordinance of the heaven and earth, then I will cast away the seed of Jacob and David my servant so that I will not take away any of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob for I will cause their captivity to return and have mercy on them. Uh, I'm gonna take care of the Jews is what the Lord's saying. Quickly, chapter 34. I have to get through this because we did 35 on Sunday and it'll be totally horrible if we don't finish. So really quickly, let's just read through verse uh, one, 34. Um, we have a warning to King Zedekiah. Now, by the way, we're coming into this new section of Jeremiah and this chapters 34 through 38 is about, it's a narrative really of the besieging of Jerusalem and the wiping out of Jerusalem. So this is where it gets kind of rough. The word of the Lord, which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and all his army and all the kingdoms of the earth of his dominion and all the people fought against Jerusalem and against all the cities thereof saying, thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, go and speak to Zedekiah, the king of Judah and tell him, thus saith the Lord, behold, I will give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire and thou shalt not escape out of his hand, but thou shalt surely be taken, delivered into his hand and thine eyes shall behold the eyes of the king of Babylon. And he shall speak with thee mouth to mouth and thou shalt go to Babylon. This would have put a huge lump in his throat to think I'm gonna go to Babylon and talk to King Nebuchadnezzar. This, that's like the worst thing a king could hear in those days. Yet, verse four, hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah, thus saith the Lord of thee, of the, thou shalt not die by the sword, but thou shalt die in peace. And with thy burnings of thy fathers, the former kings which were before thee, so shall they burn odors unto thee. And they will lament thee saying, ah, oh, Lord, for I have pronounced the word, saith the Lord. Then Jeremiah, the prophet, um, spake all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah in Jerusalem. Now we've already talked about how, you know, the book of Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 13, tells that he would not see Babylon. So they say contradiction, but no. Uh, he gets his eyes poked out, then he goes to Babylon. But as it turns out, Zedekiah lives through that, even though he's blinded and he dies in relative peace, just like the Bible says. Um, so that's the, you know, the, the word to Zedekiah. Verse seven, uh, when the king of Babylon's army fought against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left against Lachish and against Azekah, for these defense cities remained of the cities of Judah. Now this last section, verses eight through 22, is a warning to the people. The first was the warning to Zedekiah. This is the warning to the people, verse eight. This is my word that came unto Jeremiah the Lord, uh, of the, from the Lord after the, that the king of Zedekiah had made the covenant with all the people which were at Jerusalem to proclaim liberty unto them, um, that every man should be uh, let his manservant and every man his maidservant being a Hebrew or Hebrewess go free that none should serve himself of them, to wit of a Jew, his brother. Now, when all the princes and the people which had entered into the covenant heard that everyone should let his manservant and everyone let his maidservant go free, that none should serve themselves of them anymore, then they obeyed and let them go, let their slaves go. When did they let the slaves go? When Zedekiah was in trouble, when the Babylonians were ready to kill them all, they say, okay, Lord, we'll let our slaves go. But, verse 11, afterward they turned and caused the servants and the handmaids whom they'd let go free to return and brought them into subjection for servants and for handmaids again. What happened, actually, historically, we know, Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem, and so they let their slaves go. And they said, Lord, we're sorry. And the Lord said, okay, you let your slaves go. Then Nebuchadnezzar got tied up in another battle with a guy named Pharaoh Necho down in Egypt, and he left Jerusalem. He left for a, for a short season. And the Jews said, wait a minute, you, you slaves, come back here. Now that Pharaoh, now, you know, uh, ba Babylon's no longer besieging our city, come back here. And so they took their slaves back. 
And the Lord is now gonna say, I saw that. I saw that, check it out. Verse 12, therefore, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, I made a covenant with your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondmen saying, at the end of seven years, you let every man his brother, a Hebrew, which hath been sold unto thee as a slave. And when thou hath served thee six years, thou shalt let him go free from thee. But your fathers hearken not unto me, neither inclined their ear. They just kept people slaves indefinitely. And you, uh, and ye were now turned and had done right in the, my sight in proclaiming liberty, every man to his neighbor. And um, ye had made a covenant before me in the house, which is called by my name. But then you turned and polluted my name and caused every man his servant, every man his handmaid, whom you had set at liberty at their pleasure to return and brought them into subjection to be unto you for servants and for handmaids. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, you have not hearkened unto me in proclaiming liberty to everyone his brother and every man his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim a liberty for you, saith the Lord, to the sword, to the pestilence, to the famine, and I will make you to be removed into all the kingdoms of the earth. And I will give the men that have transgressed my covenant and have not performed the words of my covenant, which they have made before me, when they cut in half in twain, the calf in twain, and pass between the parts thereof. Um, does anybody know what this is called when they cut a calf in half and walk between it? Cutting covenant. Have you ever heard the phrase cutting a deal? Hey, let's cut a deal. That actually is an ancient phrase that comes from Hebrew um, where they would cut a piece of animal in half. And I mean, it'd be like if you went down to say, um, you know, uh, one of the car dealerships here locally and you're gonna get your, you know, Beaverton Honda, or, or if you go down to you know, uh, Johnstone's uh, place down here in Wilson, I'll get your Honda. And, uh, and, and you guys sit down with your, so what are we gonna do here? Well, you get out a cow, and you cut it in half, and you let it bleed there, and then you and the car salesman and the, you know, and the team there, they walk between the dead animal and say, and the idea is this, as you're holding hands, you're walking through the dead animal, and you're saying, if you don't pay your bill on this car deal, you'll be like this dead calf. I wonder if people kept their deals a little bit more back in those days. Uh, it was a bloody time, but that's what the Lord's talking about. You cut a deal with me, um, and Abraham and God cut covenant, by the way. There's a whole story in Genesis about that, but um, all that to say uh, they refused to keep the deal. So they're gonna be cut up in pieces. Verse 19, the princes of Judah, the princes of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, all the people of the land which passed between the parts of the calf I will even give, into them, give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of them that seek their life and their dead bodies shall be for meat unto the fowls of the heaven, to the beasts of the earth. And Zedekiah, king of Judah and his princes, will I give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of them that seek their life and into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which are gone up from before you. Behold, I will command, saith the Lord, and cause them to return to this city and they shall fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without an inhabitant. And the Lord did that. You know, before we go, just um, you might say, Brett, how in the world do you apply that to our lives? This cutting a calf in half and making a deal and then sort of reneging on the deal and going backwards. What does that all mean? Well, I see that happen all the time. I'll give you just one example and then we'll pack it up. The husband. The husband that is kind of coarse and mean-spirited a little bit with his wife, oh, he loves her, but you know he treats her kind of badly year after year, year after year. He just kind of says mean things, not appreciative, doesn't. And so he just kind of does sinful stuff. But meanwhile, I've, I'm always amazed at how tough these ladies are that are married to these guys. And they love them and cook meals for them and try to be kind to them. But the guy just goes for year after year after year treating her badly. Then. It's the 15 year mark I've noticed. That's the mark I've noticed that's very common. Where finally, you know, every time he speaks a mean word, she puts a brick in her heart. And then again, and after about 15 years, that brick wall, it's sealed off. Her heart is closed off to that guy. And suddenly she's stone faces, I'm done. And I see this a million times. This happens all the time. And the guy is saying, Pastor Brett, fix her. She hates me now. Um, and you gotta, you gotta fix our marriage. 
And the guy, he realizes he's been a dupe and he's been a jerk for all those 15 years. And, and she never, she didn't wanna be the whiny wife. She didn't wanna complain, but all the while he just treated her badly. And so suddenly he's repentant. He's like, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll treat you really good and I'll love you, honey. Uh, and forgive me, forgive me. And, and, and I'll just tell you, honestly, if that 15 year thing, it's, you know, it's hard. Men's hearts can be flipped around quickly. I've noticed that a woman's heart is a little different than a man's heart. Um, you know, the jet boats out in the water, every now they spin around, that's a man's heart. The woman's heart's like the Titanic, turn that heart around, it's like, whoa, boy, that's not gonna change. Whew. So at that 15 year mark, I've seen a lot of women like just shut down and she goes her way and it's done. But if by the grace of God, she says, okay, I forgive you. And she, you know, and, and I've seen where the Lord can miraculously pull bricks out and see things refreshed and restored. And that's, that's a miracle of God. And it's something that God only can do. But, but I've also seen it where the guy's like, oh, I'll be good from this day forward. And he treats her really, really good for two whole weeks. Have you guys seen this? Where the guy's like, I'm sorry, honey. And she says, okay, you know, and she, she's trying to restore and go back. And, but the guy just goes back to his old ways. This is what's being talked about here in Jeremiah chapter 34. The Jews were in desperate trouble. Things looked bleak. And so they said, we're sorry. Here's our slaves, Lord. We'll be good from this day forward. And then as soon as the Babylonians left and everything was back to normal, get those slaves back in here. And that, that's just human nature right there. And the Lord says, because you've done this, you're gonna die. And, and sadly, there's a lot of spiritual death going on, I think, because people are unwilling to repent from their sins. Repentance, true repentance doesn't mean two weeks. True repentance means never again, breaking off our sins. So learn the lesson from the Jews there in chapter 34. And we did it, praise the Lord. Uh, chapter 34, uh, 35 we did last Sunday, 36 we'll pick up next Wednesday, Lord willing, let's pray. Lord, how we thank you for your word. And it really is pertinent and relevant for today. Um, Lord, the heart of the Jews in this story, we can recognize in our own hearts the propensity to sin and have a, a really bad mentality about things. But I pray that you'd help us to learn from these stories. And Lord, it's so much better to learn in the sanctuary rather than to learn out in the storm, out in the real life issues. So help us to learn from your word and take heed to what the scriptures say here, Lord, and give us understanding, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.